Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and on today's episode, myself and Jordan Angeli answer your listener questions. We talk about a couple of young Americans. We talk about a team struggling out in the Eastern Conference, and then we talk about center backs. You know it had to be done. Let's do this thing. All right, Jordan, the first of our four questions comes from a Mr. Sean Hardgrove who asks, what are your thoughts on Moses Nyman? What does he do well and what are areas for growth? To give some background on Moses Nyman first, I think a lot of folks will be familiar with him, but he's a 17-year-old. He's five foot five. He's a small central midfielder for DC United. He started their last two games and then came off the bench uh, against the New England Revolution one week earlier. He's played a couple different spots within that midfield Jordan, I want to flip it to you first to answer Sean's question. What what do you like about Moses Nyman? We'll start there. What what do you enjoy okay. and what do you think Moses Nyman does well? Where I want to start is I, I do think he is a good central midfielder in the sense that he can keep the ball, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the most important things you have to do if you're in the middle of the field because a lot of the times you're that point of contact to set the pace of play. And so one of the things I actually just got to watch him play against the Columbus crew over the weekend and got to talk about him on the broadcast because I was impressed by his ability to, I think it was part of DC's game plan to get the ball on the strong side, the side that was just attacked and to be that connecting piece, switching the point of attack to the far sided central midfielder. And I think he did a really good job with that. When I was looking at just his stats over the last game, he had 65 touches for 53 passes. So he was efficient with his touches, which I think is really good, especially in in the midfield. You're you're not going to have a lot, I think, the way that DC plays. They don't want him to be a dribbling type player. They want him to get a touch and find the pass. And looking at those stats, I think that's a really good example of how he does a good job of being efficient with his touches and connecting. The other thing I would say, Joe, I feel like he plays forward quite often. And that might just be a a result of how Hernan Lasada likes to play because we know that he wants to go. But I I felt like when he got the ball, maybe it was was, uh, horizontal on the field, but it always had – it was breaking some kind of line where it was going forward slightly, not not too many of the passes back. So I thought that was a positive as well. I've noticed something similar to what you're talking there. He, he's a connector. That's that's yeah. how I view him. He's got that quality on the ball, both with his right foot, with his left foot. He's composed under pressure in most situations. And sure, he's still learning. He's young. But he has the ability to get on the ball, get out of a little tight spot, and then play a nice forward pass. And he doesn't play these line-breaking passes. We've talked about we've talked about that distinction before between, I don't know why these two players always come to mind, but between Pozuelo and between Caden Clark. Pozuelo will break lines with his passing and play a through ball into the box. Caden Clark can, and, and I'm sure he will, but he doesn't do that as often as a Pozuelo-type guy does. Nyman, even though he tends to play a little bit deeper in midfield for DC than Clark does for New York, Nyman is more of a connector. He's more of a Caden Clark-type, I'm going to string together a pass to keep the rhythm, rather than I'm going to break the game wide open. I think that's a notable distinction, and 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 we'll get more into that in the second half of Sean's question, but... I think he's a good connector. I think he has quality on the ball. And I think he actually is fairly mobile defensively. And this is another situation of, 
I don't know if it's because he's playing for DC United that I'm noticing this more, or, or you know, Hernan Losada's DC United relative to Ben Olsen's DC United, where there is a lot more pressing. But Nyman does get out and pressure the ball. He does move forward and try to apply that on-ball pressure to win balls. I am going to flip us to the second half of the question, though, because one thing I think he could do better defensively is he's not a particularly effective presser. He'll go and, and chase the ball. He'll go and do that work, and he is pretty mobile and energetic, but he's not actually particularly good at winning the ball from from the player that he's going to mark or the player that he's chasing down. He's small, and he doesn't have to be this ball-winning Jose Martinez or ball-winning James Sands. But the more you can win the ball, the more value you provide in a midfield. And at only 17 years old, I think that is a place where he could expand his ceiling or get closer to his ceiling just by becoming mm-hmm. a more effective presser. Well, that kind of goes to my overall thought of who he is as a player and what he could, where his growth can be. And I think it just is in decision making. And that's a decision that you're making, right? Am I going to press and can I win the ball or should I stay and cover and clog a passing lane and keep the team that we're playing in front of us. So I think that is a decision-making. I think on the ball decision-making, it's hard because so much of me in watching DC United, I just want them to slow down in moments and keep <laughs> the ball. And so it's not it's not that he – maybe he's trying to make the decision that is right in the manager's eyes and go, go, go. But I think if he's going to play that position, some of what he should do is be the metronome of, okay, when do I need to go forward and when can I keep the ball – and allow my team to rest in possession. And and both of those, both defensively and offensively for me, are decision-making qualities that you only learn by playing in games and getting experience. And um, I know you mentioned his size and physicality. I actually feel like he isn't afraid, though, to get in no. confrontations. There was a moment in the game on Saturday where he pushed Jassy's artist off the ball, and I was like, okay, well... This kid's ready to go. So I I think that he's up for it, but deciding when to go in for a tackle, when to allow the attacker to maybe take a heavy touch and then scoop the ball up, that might be one of the things. I think Darlington Nagby does that really well. One of the the ways that he can apply his pressure defensively with a better decision of saying, hey, I'm not going to probably win the tackle, but maybe I can beat them to the next touch. One thing I want to get back to, I like that image of Nyman bodying Jossie Zardes. One thing I want to get back to, looking at his offensive game before we hit the next question, we talked about, you know, kind of how he plays with the ball. I I know there's a call for him to be a little bit more measured, just like there is for DC, to slow the game down. I think that's something we'll actually talk about later with uh, Toronto FC. We have a question about them. I think I think Nyman has the quality on the ball to become closer to a Pozuelo type of player. And and that sounds super extreme. I'm not meaning he's going to get all the way down to that end. But if we look at it as a, a continuum between, I don't know, who, the safest, maybe James Sands when he's playing as a six. He he doesn't tend right. to break a lot of lines with his passing. If Sands is on one end and Harris Madunian is on another end, maybe that's a more central midfield safe continuum. I think okay. there's an opportunity for Nyman to shift away from the Sands end and, a, and become a little bit closer to the Medunian end, where he's breaking lines a little bit more, again, in the right moments. And that's the hardest yeah. part. I don't know how to teach right. that part. I don't know how you learn that part. I've never tried to learn that part. But I think Nyman, he had this little moment against the crew in the 38th minute where he got the ball in a tight space. The crew are pressing, not a fallout 4-4-2 high press, but a, a pretty high, like a little higher than a mid-block. 
and they're applying pressure on DC's buildup, and Nyman gets on the ball, he turns out of pressure and plays this little left-footed slip pass that bypasses four defenders, and then DC are out. They're able to move the ball forward into the attack, get the ball to the far side, and attack from there. I think Nyman can do more of that stuff. Not in every moment. That's not even what DC needs him to do or wants him to do in every moment. Sometimes they need him to be that metronome, like you're saying, Jordan, and they benefit from that. But I think he has the quality to play more of those types of passes and get a little closer to the Medunian and end of that continuum. Will he? I don't know. But I, I think that could be a potential area for growth. Okay. I like that. And I like that. I know those those passes that you were talking about, I feel like he executed that very well on, on in the game over the weekend. Yeah, do it again. Do it again, Moses. You've got time. DC are in this <laughs> weird some some injuries caused by Losada and his style, it seems, others caused by a bunch of other factors, COVID vaccinations, pre existing injuries. But either way, Nyman is getting into this lineup and playing and I think he's I think overall he's shown pretty well, and that's something to be excited about yeah, for DC absolutely. fans. Absolutely. So absolutely. okay. Jordan, on to our next question. This one is from David Dimmitt, who says on last week's RSL versus SKC broadcast, I saw a stat about KC starting 10 different players at center back since 2019. On top of any difference in talent or ability level between the players, can you talk about the role that consistency or familiarity plays in a successful defense? Jordan, you are the resident expert on actual playing and, and playing <laughs> questions related to this. So I'm going to turn it to you. What can you tell us about how important it is to have center backs that know each other? Joe, does that, I mean, it must hurt your heart to throw it to me since you love center backs. <laughs> no, bit. Jordan, it, it is an honor and, and I know I'll get it on the bounce back. So either way, I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start us off here. I thought this was a really good question because center back is not a position that you think of as being very intricate in the way that you think of a attacking midfielder and the creativity and having to break down a defense in the attacking third, which is, um, some of the most difficult things to do. But why is it difficult? Well, it's because the opposing team is well organized and they do things well defensively and they make those gaps really small. And so I think that uh, there's not even when I transitioned to play center back, I was like, oh, there's there's not much to this. And then I got in it and I thought, wow, there are constant decisions that you have to be making. And so when you're looking at Kansas City and 10 different players playing at center back in just really a two, little over two year span, it's incredible to think that even last year, they were the best team in the Western Conference with that many changes. And so I, I look at the intricacies of this position. So the, the main thing is organization. When you're one of those two center backs, you're constantly making a decision of where your line of confrontation is, uh, how far up you're going to be. And you're communicating this sometimes with the players in front of you. And then with your back line itself, how high up are we going to be? Um, am I faster than my center back partner? Well, if I am, I maybe want the line our defensive line to be a little bit higher because I know I can recover, but the player next to me can't. So maybe they want it a little bit deeper. So you're constantly adjusting that line. If you don't have that communication with your center back partner, or that knowledge of how they play in certain situations, I think it makes it difficult to set a sturdy line. Then you're talking about playing against some teams who play a three front and then some teams who play one player up front, two players coming out of the midfield. How do you pass and organize players that are changing different zones? That's a lot of decisions. Did I just yeah. go through a lot of decisions in a small amount of time? And so this is the thing that I think people maybe look over with center backs is they are constantly in this 
almost organization slash fighting fires type of uh, mindset where they see things break down in front of them and they have to make split second decisions as to, uh, can I go press the ball? Does the center back next to me have the ability to cover me if I need that second defender, if I get beat 1v1? So all of these things are going through your mind. And I, I, I find it quite remarkable that Kansas City has done well with so many different center backs in, in that position over the last couple of years. Credit to Peter Vermees for that largely, yeah. I think, and how he has this team playing. They have a pretty consistent identity regardless of who's on the field, and I think they deserve credit for that. And that's a lot of why they have been so good so often. I think there's a reason why, especially now with five subs, we mm-hmm. have these extra subs because of the era that we're in. How many of those subs get used on center backs? So few, right? So few. Coaches don't like to take center backs out of the game. They don't like to break up their defensive pairing. Fullbacks come in and out. Matias Almeida brings on two fullbacks pretty much every game around the 60th minute, right? He, he refreshes his fullback core. Sure, a lot of that's because of how he plays, but fullbacks are much more rotational in terms of how they're used in games and how they come out and come in. Center backs, not, not so much. I think quality is extremely important as, as a team wanting to play out of the back and to defend, but I think there's a lot of value and familiarity as well. Well, think about the vantage point that center backs have as well. They can see the whole entire field from where they're standing a lot of the times and organizing. They can recognize where gaps are opening and where their team is attacking or where they're getting broken down because they can see the entire field. So when you bring in a center back from the sideline, their vantage point is so different than that of the two that have been playing in the entire game. So that's one of the reasons I think, too, um, that they don't get subbed very often. I know that this isn't MLS related, but in NWSL, there was a game in the Challenge Cup this year where North Carolina Courage played Gotham FC and Paul Riley at halftime. The game was three to two at halftime. It was just a goal fest. Oh, yes. And, okay. Yes. And at halftime, Paul Riley changed both of his center backs. And after the game, he said, and he's been a longtime coach. He, he coached in, um, WPS. He coached, he's coached almost every year in NWSL. And he said, that is one of three times I've ever subbed both my center backs in a game. Wow. That's how important that pairing is. Yeah. That is a great illustration. It's, you, you need that familiarity. You need players that understand each other's tendencies. Mm-hmm. And it, it also helps to have players who have been seeing it all from the beginning. I love that point. I've never thought about center backs coming off the bench. Don't see what the center backs in the game have been seeing. And what? You can't convey all that information in a two second interaction at the, the touchline as you're coming in for that second half appearance. It just, it, it doesn't <laughs> like work like other. that. <laughs> hugging <laughs> each other. Well, make sure you watch out for, um, now Pizuelo's on my mind. Make sure you watch out for Pizuelo. He's really tucking inside and then finding this slip ball through here. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> it, it, it can't, I think Bozuelo gets more mention on this show for a player who yeah, hasn't actually know. played a single minute this season. But right. uh, he's our go-to. He's our go-to player X. But you're right, Jordan. And you make a lot of, of good points that I hadn't thought about. Hopefully, David, that's useful for you. It's impressive what SKC have done without continuity at that spot. And, and maybe they'll find some of that. Maybe they won't. They just subbed off. I believe it was Puncic midway through their game against Austin on Sunday. So... Uh, yeah. Maybe not, but they are continuing <laughs> to roll on as we will continue to roll on. Jordan, this next question is from Nick, who asks, given Almeida's style of play with San Jose, do you think the nine spot is the best fit for Cade Cowell? What does he offer in that position that other players don't? I like Ooh. this question. 
I do too. I'm going to take the first stab at the first I half was of that say, question. So, well, it feels right because Joe, I took the first stab at both of those. So, <laughs> okay. you, you go and, first. And I'm taking the first stab at you know is Kate Cow best as a number nine under Almeida to say and take this big stand that says I have no idea. I still don't think we have enough information about Kate Cow, or I don't at least. To make that call, I think last year we saw, well, I know last year we saw more on the wing in the later stages of games this year Mm -hmm. after Andres Rios comes in or Wando comes in or both of them come in. He's transitioned back out wide and provides danger in those spots as well. He had a nice dribble after switching out to the left wing against RSL on Friday night. But I, I will say, I think he provides a lot of value as a number nine and he does a lot of things that other players on San Jose's roster don't do. I think his best ceiling could be as a nine if he can really refine his movement in the box. Hint, hint, Wando teaching him stuff. I think that could actually happen. So I'll say sure. I think it is very possible that Cade Cowell's best spot is the nine. Before I get into more of a a scouting report on Cade Cowell, I'm planning to write a piece on him soon. I'm hoping to at least. So I'm using this as an excuse to write some things down and to prep for that story. Jordan, I want to turn it to you. Do you think the nine is is the spot for Cade Cowell or would you put him somewhere else? I think it's a good spot in this system. And this is why I think it's very, you know, we don't know who Cade Cowell would be under any other coach, but Almeida right now. And what I find, so I I started to think, okay, how does this team play defensively? And defensively, they're chasing players around. And so what what tends to happen is they're looking to go on the break. One, there's two things really here. So, the team can get kind of discombobulated in this defensive structure, which can pull Cowell away from that front line as a number nine sometimes. Because you and I have talked many times about how center backs against uh, San Jose do have at times freedom to dribble into the attack or pull that defender into um, deeper into their own defending half. But what I feel like Cal can do well, and no matter where he is on the field, is his ability to transition is probably unlike any player that we see right now in MLS. He is uber athletic. And so I think that in Almeida's system, because he can get pulled away from that traditional nine spot where he's just posting up and holding the ball in as an outlet, he can do that. He has the strength to do that, believe me. But he also can get pulled away in that defensive I'll say shape in quotes, uh, air quotes, uh, defensive shape where then the ball is won and they can just play it into space, which we saw from one of his goals a couple weeks ago, where they can just play it into space and he can win the foot race. So he doesn't have to only post up. He doesn't only have to transition. He can do both. And I feel like because of the way they play defensively, he might be their best person to play in that, because like looking before, if you're looking at last year, Danny Hooson is not going to win that foot race. So yeah. he was a different number nine for them. If he got pulled out, then it was difficult for San Jose to, they had to possess a little bit more going forward. But Kate Cowell is like, all right, we can just play it, play it out there into space and he can go win that race or at least get into a, a defensive confrontation where maybe he can win the tackle or the duel or whatever it may be. So, um, I kind of like him in that spot for now, but I agree with you. We don't have a huge, um, Number of what's that called? Test cases? Yeah, we don't have a, we don't have a big sample size on Cade Cowell. Sample size. Yet. We Test don't have cases, a large whatever you know. <laughs> a large set of data. I think I think you make a really really good point that I hadn't fully thought about in my mind. When Cade Cowell's playing as that nine, 
he's not responsible for tracking the opposing fullbacks like the wingers are for San Jose. Christian right. Espinoza, his job defensively is to deal if he's playing on the right wing his job is to deal with the opposing left back and if that left back goes all the way down to the to the opposing end line christian espinosa is going to follow him and he's far away from the play Cade cowell doesn't really have to deal with that he doesn't have to get as deep in the muck which benefits him in a lot of ways it it fits his skill set to then be that offensive outlet either over the top or to hold the ball up like you're saying i think he is almost able to avoid a lot of those defensive duties or avoid them largely in that number nine yeah. spot. So I think that it, that does help him develop his offensive game right now, for sure. Looking at what he brings in that spot, that number nine spot that others don't. I mean, Cal started all four games at that spot, two goals, three assists this year. He's outperforming his underlying stats, but he's, he is doing a lot of danger creating things out on the field. That's pretty clear to see. What does Cade Cowell bring? Well, he brings speed number one, and that speaks to why he's such an effective offensive outlet. He loves to run in behind. He loves to bend his run behind, to stay onside, to beat that opposing offside. Trappy did it against Dallas a whole bunch a couple weeks back. And he likes to just hold that run just long enough until a teammate can play him that ball over the top. Then he can turn, beat eight defenders in behind and, mm-hmm. and get the ball in the box and do crazy things there. So he's also really strong. You mentioned it, Jordan, already. He can serve as that outlet to feet. He doesn't always have the technical ability to work out of those tight spots, but he can do it sometimes. And I guess that speaks to the last thing I wanted to say here. He he sometimes displays like this shocking ability to do things with the ball that I never would have expected against Dallas. He had that outside of the football that looked like Kevin De Bruyne out there doing crazy things. And then in the next moment, I feel like he'll get the ball and he'll take a heavy touch and then they'll lose it. Is that a thing, Jordan, among young players where they have the the vision, they have the technical quality, but not always the consistency to to do that on a regular basis? That feels like a common teenage soccer thing. But Cowell, I feel like, is oftentimes on such ends of the extreme. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, think about where he is just even in his like maturity as a human and so many things over the last few years, like he's gotten faster. He might not no- realize his strength. So his touch is heavy. He might the way that he cushioned a ball before might be a- have to be a little bit more because he's running at a faster pace. There are so many things that I think just physic physically as he is as a human are adjusting and adapting that his game has to go along that that same trajectory. And so you're going to see moments where, all right, that was too heavy of a touch because he's at full pace and he didn't realize that he needed to cushion it a little bit more where then you're seeing him try, you know, you mentioned that outside the football that went and was successful, but he tried it again in a different game and it wasn't successful. But I like that he has the knowledge and ability to know, okay, this is the right texture to put on the ball. It needs to come back into the path of a player or away from the oncoming defender. So he's he's understanding the technique that goes into it. But that's the hardest thing to do as a professional in general, let alone a 17-year-old professional, is to be consistent game in and game out. So I think that will grow as he grows and gets more playing time at, you know, consistently gets more playing time. That's a big part of it as well. Yeah. And and to close this one out, looking at what he does that Wando or Andres Rios, the other players in competition for that number nine spot. I mean, Rios was supposed to be the starter from what I've read. But he had a little knock coming out of preseason, and so Kate Cowell got the start, and he's just taken that job. And maybe he'll lose it later on this season. That wouldn't be a surprise, nor would that be the end of the world. 
But for now, Cal brings that speed, that strength, even that willingness to try things that Wando and Rios just don't bring. And that's okay. That's not their game. Wando's game, we know by now. He wants to get in the box and score two goals off the bench like he did against RSL on Friday. He'll do that kind of stuff. Rios is, is a little bit more of a traditional nine from what I've seen of him in the past. And and Kate Cowell isn't. He does a lot of other things, and I think Almeida likes that. And right now, he, the biggest thing that he has that those players don't have is he's the hot hand, at least from right. a starter's perspective. Wando's the hot hand mm-hmm. off the bench. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I don't think there's a lot of reason for Almeida to mess with the recipe right now. Right. I mean, my San Jose predictions are going strong right now. <laughs> what did Early you predict season, about San Jose? Very strong. Oh, goals, um, goals, goals, goals. Yeah, four four goals a game, which has happened twice. And four total goals a game. And then Wando would have, I think I said 10 plus goals. Oh, I yeah, mean, that's right. Yeah, he's a fifth away there, and we're only four games into the year. Okay, <sighs> let's go, Wando. Is there, is there someone turn the I game can... off. <laughs> you knew it was going to happen. You can't. You can't turn off an Earthquakes game. That's just not okay. <laughs> is there, Jordan, is there some higher power that I can submit an, an appeal or a request to change my Austin prediction to? Like, do we have someone above us in our structure that I can email yeah. or send a handwritten letter to? Because Nick Lima hasn't tucked inside one darn time this whole season. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not what Josh Wolf, Josh Wolf wants to do. I, man, I'll think, I got to think of a new prediction first. But when I do, I'm going to submit an appeal to someone. Yeah. You just watch. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Right. I like that idea. Last question. This one is from Dan. Uh, this is an excellently worded question. I'm going to read it in all of its glory. Why can't Toronto FC keep any possession of the ball, constantly passing it to the other team? What is the attack plan? Dan, you sound like a sad Toronto fan right now. And I hope we can give you some hope throughout this. And at least I will later on. But to be fair to Dan and to Toronto, it has not been a strong start to the season. They've gone through a coaching change. They're dealing with injuries. They've had CCL. Those are difficult things to to overcome, but they have not looked good, and they really didn't look good on Saturday against the Red Bulls in that 2 nothing loss. Chris Armas against his old team. Jordan, why can't Toronto keep the ball? What is their attacking game plan right now under Chris Armas, or what are we observing it to be? Well, I might throw the second part to you, because I'm going to dig into Toronto a little bit more this week. I haven't had the chance sure. to yeah. really get into what is their attacking plan. But I think one of the things that I think about as a player and being in TFC for a long time. This is a largely unchanged group. The, the core of them have been together, I think, for the last, let's say, three years, I would say, the, the majority of these players. And in those three years, they've been playing a certain type of way under Greg Vanny, and that was so ingrained in their mind. They had patterns of play that were easily easy to execute because they knew the player next to them was going to be in this spot and that player was going to be in that spot. And so they had options when they were on the ball. And I think what I'm seeing and what I'm observing so far of what I've watched of them is just not confident in the new style of play that Chris Armas has them playing. Not to say that it won't work out, but you it's just ingrained in your brain as to how how to play. And you're trying to almost flip that really on its head and play a completely different way, it's hard to break old habits. And I think right now what's happening is you're seeing the the difficulty of that exact thing. Yeah. And this is kind of what I alluded to earlier, looking at why they can't keep possession of the ball. 
I think players are almost being pulled in two directions. I tried to put myself in the shoes of one of those players doing exactly what you said. You've had Greg Vanny as a manager playing with the ball. And now Chris Armas comes in after years of playing that previous style. And he says, look, guys, we still want to keep the ball in moments, but we also want to press in other moments. And then when we're in this space, we want to be narrow. And then when we're in this space, we want to be a little bit wider. I mean, your brain has got to be going a thousand miles a minute trying to figure out, okay, wait, am I supposed to keep the ball now? Am I supposed to keep the ball later? When when do we want to possess? When do we want to press? And I think when you have 10 outfield players plus a goalkeeper trying to understand that for themselves and then multiply that by every other outfield player and goalkeeper, then you've got a bunch of different factors all trying to work through a relatively complex problem trying to find the balance between pressing and possession. And how many times do you hear coaches in halftime interviews or in-game interviews say, we need to find the right moments to press. We need to find the right moments to possess. Well, how do you do that? And how do you do that when you've had this giant stylistic change or what we assume to be a stylistic change? I guess we still don't really know exactly what Armas is trying to do, but at least a shape change in certain moments. How do you find the right opportunity to do X or the right opportunity to do Y and have it make sense? I think right now for Toronto, we're seeing a big disconnect between when they when they should go direct and when they should keep the ball. And we're seeing the players not fully understand when those moments should be. And that's a really hard thing to figure out. And it's going to take time for Toronto, frankly. And yeah. we're seeing that right now. We're seeing the growth, the, the growing pains here. And it almost makes me feel like. Gosh, I just imagine the players are just so frustrated, too, as just the thought of like, okay, we know we can be successful this certain way. And now we're trying to adjust and adapt and add to our own personal game of saying, okay, we can play different styles and be successful. But at some point, you feel like maybe the players on the field are just going to be like, let's go back to what we know. Yeah. And like, why, why was Chris Armas the hire? And maybe this is too early for this conversation. I'm not saying he's going to do a bad job. I'm not saying Toronto can't have a successful season because they can, even though it hasn't been a good start to this year. But with the roster that Toronto has and with the way they've been playing that had success under Greg Vanny, took them to multiple MLS cups, won them trophies. Why would you bring in a coach who's game plan is different, or we assume it to be different. I I still didn't get a great read on what Armas wanted to do during his time with the Red Bulls, but he comes from that system where you expect we're going to be playing more without the ball. We're going to be playing more defensively. We're going to be pressing more. Why, why would you make that higher given the roster you have? You had the chance to find a coach that fit with the group you had and could elevate that group to a level that even Greg Vanny couldn't get them to, and you didn't make that move. I don't fully understand that. And then you bring in Jefferson Sol... I've been saying his name wrong. I just found this out over the weekend. Soteldo. So Jefferson Soteldo. Yeah, so I'll work on it, guys. I'll work on it. But you bring in <laughs> this this playmaker from South America who's not a presser. He's a five foot two Giovinco type guy and maybe likes to dribble a little bit more, maybe likes to play a little bit wider. But you have him and Pozuelo still yet to be integrated into this group. And your best nine when he's healthy is Josie Altidore, who can't run. So I, I don't understand, and maybe this is all too early. Again, I don't understand the move to get Armas right now. Nothing against Chris Armas, nothing against what he's mm-hmm. trying to build, but I have questions. All that to say, yeah. I will answer the second half of Dan's question. What is the attack plan? And then we'll get out of here, Jordan. I think Chris Armas and what he's trying to do right now is emphasizing pressing and then also trying to get the offensive shape a little bit more narrow and congested to build those little combinations. Jesse Marsh calls it quick play where a lot of players are congested and you're just using these little little combination moves, flicks, quick one-touch passes, one-two-touch passing, pass and move. I think that's what Armas wants to do. And when it 
when it works, it's actually really fun to watch. And Toronto do have players who can execute that. Michael Bradley can conduct that. Delgado and Osorio can can combine. And they have other talented young central midfielders and attackers who can play that way. It just is not what they're used to. They're trying to be narrow. There's not a lot of emphasis on width in the final third, especially against the Red Bulls. There wasn't. It was all very congested into those three vertical channels of the field. In the final third, even the fullbacks would be tucked inside. So it is a 4-4-2 shape. But Delgado's played on the right wing for most of their games, and he's not a winger. He'll tuck inside every single time. And Richie LeRae will provide a touch more width on that side, but even then, not a lot. So it's it's very compact. They're trying to use little combinations. It's not working right now. They're one of the lowest XG teams in the league. They also haven't scored a lot of goals. They've given up some they've had some big errors defensively, but that doesn't really fit in the scope of Dan's questions. But all of these things add together to to provide a pretty rough start to the year for Toronto. Well, even just those, what you were just mentioning, like Richie Larea was devastating to other teams last year because of his use of the width and his ability to find space and, and punish teams where the space was, which was either in the channel right in behind the, the outside back. And it just seems to me like tucking him inside and not allowing him to utilize the, the, the space and the width and where it's at just doesn't, hmm, it's a tough <laughs> one. It's a tough one. We're, we're both a little bit baffled here, but, I do think there is hope for Toronto, if not to become the best team in Major League Soccer, to become one of the most entertaining teams in Major League Soccer. Because we're seeing Jefferson Soteldo come into this group, and we're seeing Pozuelo, eventually he's going to be in this group. I don't know when that's going to happen, but they have the pieces to be really fun, even within Chris Armas' mold. Will they be good? I have no idea, but they could be downright entertaining this year, and I think that's going to be... Must see TV, honestly, in the way that the earthquakes are like that out west. Toronto could be yeah. that team, that just that chaos wildcard team in the east. And I like that. How long do you think it'll take to get to that chaos? Uh, man, a month, maybe, maybe June, maybe yeah. by June. So yeah. a few more weeks. I'm thinking end of June, but. Okay. Yeah. Still. You're probably right. I'm probably a little early, it's but. Weird. It's just weird talking about Toronto like that, isn't it? It feels wrong. And if this doesn't work out, why... there will be some serious questions asked. Yeah, that's probably why Dan wrote that. He's not, he's not <laughs> okay. used to it. Maybe Dan's just a Montreal fan and really <laughs> wanted a dig at Toronto, but he's posing himself and he worded that question as a Toronto fan. Just so I think I think he's sitting back and smoking a cigar and drinking a glass of whiskey right now, kicking up his <laughs> legs and in, in, in a, some sort of fur jacket. I, I think he's right. living life right now in Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dan. We're out of here, Dan, and, and everyone else who asked us questions. Thank you, guys. Thank you, as always, for listening and for interacting with us on Twitter and giving us questions. We appreciate you. This show would not exist without you. Jordan, this show would also not exist without you, so thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Joe. That was a fun one. Thanks, guys, for your questions. Thank you again, everyone, and we'll be back again soon.